Amen. Well, we've just sang two invitation songs as they would probably be classified in in your hymnal. And, and they both pointed us to the same place. The call of God to, to His creation after the fall. The call of God to sinners all over the planet is to trust, is to by faith look to what God has provided. And what God has provided is, is the worth and work of, of Jesus Christ. I can remember the first area that, that I served as a new Christian in, in my church was, was what they called evangelism director. Now, that was probably something that Pastor Joe uh, made up because he had somebody on fire and was willing to show up for visitation or coordinate other things in the church. But that was my title, and I got it, and I wore it with pride. I thought I was, man, this is great. I get to, I'm the evangelism director at Red House Church. And I can re- recall going through a program that you probably know well called Evangelism Explosion. Do you remember E.E.? I can remember going through evangelism explosion, and, and, and I can remember leading others through that, through that program. And, and, and sharing Christ is not about a program, it's about a person, but, but those programs help us systematize things and, and, and give people that, like myself, that don't really even know where to go or what to do, some hooks in which to hang the, the gospel on. And, and one of the probing questions that, that you asked when you were in a witnessing situation with someone, is if you were to die today and stand before God and He asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And, and the whole purpose of that question is to get to the heart of the matter of what are you trusting in for eternal life. And, and it, it's, a, it's a hypothetical situation that's, that's, that's not going to happen. You know what you're trusting in. God knows what you're trusting in when you get there. But, but the point is to bring a person to that, to that pivotal question that they're probably not asking, what they're trusting in for eternal life. And, and while you could ask that same question in many ways, there's no more crucial question. And the answer, there is no greater ramifications. It's a matter of, of eternity. The basis of your hope of heaven is something that every person must be crystal clear on. I don't know if you saw this past week some of the uh, the more the details are coming out in that Oregon shooting, and and one of which is where a guy you know he, he puts him in the middle of the room and he asks them, "Are you a Christian?" Asks them about the religion, and the the one person says, "Yes, I'm a Christian," and and, and he he makes some statement about seeing God and he kills them. And then another person stands up and he says, are you religious? And the other person said, well, I'm Catholic, but I'm not sure about the afterlife. And he shot them and they died and went into the, the afterlife. And I just thought about that, that I'm, yes, I'm religious, I'm Catholic, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm, not, a, I'm not sure that I believe in the afterlife. Or what about the afterlife? And you can fill in any blank. I am Baptist, I am Catholic, I am agnostic, I am whatever, but I'm unsure about where I will spend the afterlife. And a lot of people live that way. They have a certain belief system. They have certain thoughts about God. I saw last week's statistics that, that uh, upward of, of, of upper 70s, low 80s, 
People in America say that they believe that there's a creator, there's a God, there's something out there. But how many of them would say that they're sure of eternal life? They're sure of what they're, of what they're trusting in. What about you? Are you sure of what you're trusting in, in eternal, for, for eternal life? If you're wrong about that question, then, then there's no do-over. Stephen Cole says there's no makeup exams at the judgment seat. And yet it's amazing that the answers that you get whenever you, when you get the privilege to ask someone. I can remember Ed Gomes, my first Sunday school teachers here in Lynchburg. Some of you know Brother, Brother Ed. He, he would make this statement. He didn't originate it, but he always reminded us when we were witnessing, earn the right to be heard. If you earn the right to be heard, if someone gives you the privilege of speaking into their life about eternal matters, they trust you in that way, and you can tinker around in their heads It's an unguarded moment. It's amazing some of the answers that you'll actually get. I've lived a pretty good life. I've done the best that I I could. Basically, I'm a good person. I've never tried to hurt anyone, and you've probably said it and, and heard it. And, of course, getting into heaven is not just about answering a question correctly. Getting into heaven is about a spiritual resurrection. Getting into heaven is about being born from above. It's about being forgiven by your sins. It Forgiving of your sins, it's... It's about being reconciled to God. But you have to be clear on the biblical basis on which God does that. And that's the heart of what we're celebrating. We're focusing on today. We're saying about sola, sola fide. Sola fide is the doctrine by faith alone. And it asserts God's pardon for guilty sinners is granted to and received through faith alone, excluding all works. If you go to the Bible, the Bible teaches that all mankind is fallen and sinful and therefore under the curse of God and incapable of saving himself or herself from God's wrath. There's no way to save. God must save. But God, that's Ephesians 2, right? And you, but God, being rich in mercy, and you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, and he talks about proves the life that you are, but God, being, being rich in mercy. But God, on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, grants sinners a judicial pardon, which is what justification means, which is received solely through through faith. I dug this up. You probably can't see it, but it's a, it's a shorter Baptist catechism on justification. I mean, anybody wants a copy of that, I'll be happy to to email it to you. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all of our sins. Notice the underlined pardons. And accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And there there is our topic for this morning. You know, this is actually the great difference between biblical Christianity and every other form of Christianity and every other religion in the world. It's the heart of the gospel, faith alone. It's the primary argument of Old and New Testament. It's the connecting thread that holds all of the Bible together. The doctrine that says a man is made right with God through faith stretches from Genesis to Revelation. We we read this morning in Hebrews 11 from all the way back to 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 Abel, to Noah, and all the way up to to today. It's the doctrine upon which the gospel 
stands and falls. You might think of it this way. If the gospel is a wheel, faith alone is the hub. If Christ is the bread we need, then faith is the arm that puts it in our mouth. If Christ's righteousness is the credit we need, then faith is the card that gives us access. If forgiveness is the balm, then faith is the key that opens the container. If salvation is the medicine for our sin-sick souls, then faith is the dropper that carries it to our lips. Faith is the instrument that connects a sinner to God's provision of Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to see how Jesus explains this to a, a group of people who are trusting in something other than other than, than faith. So I want you to open your Bibles to Luke 18. And we're going to look at verse 9. Luke 18 and verse 9. This is a very familiar scene that describes a story. It's the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You probably read that as a child. We love it because it is such a clear picture of two types of people. Two individuals that are approaching God. One is approaching God through faith in himself. And the other is approaching God through, through faith alone. And it's a contrast between, between two men. And so if I would summarize this parable, I would say there are two, the two ways a person approaches God. There's, there's only two ways. Now you might, you might find different ways to squiggle the line, but there's only two ways that you approach God. Yourself, or reaching, receiving, laying hold of what God has, has provided. So let's read Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. It says, And Jesus, and he, spoke of this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. There's the contrast. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful, be propitiated to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We read this this morning. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Hebrews 11. But then there's this verse that troubled me when I first came to Christ. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that troubled me because I was thinking faith as something that I did. It was, it was how sincere I was about believing God. And, and, and sometimes when I look at my, at my own heart, if the weight rests upon how sincere I am, then, then man, am I pleasing enough to God or am I not? But that's not what he's talking about. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It, it, let me say it this way. Faith is the only way to satisfy God. Faith is the only way that God's righteous demands can be fulfilled. Do you, I've quoted this numbers of, uh, numerous times. Do you remember what Jesus 
the, the word from heaven that the Father says about Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without looking to Christ, without faith alone, looking to the one that whom, in whom God is pleased, it's impossible for, for God to be satisfied with you because He is holy and, and righteous. But what does it mean to look to God by faith? How does one approach God in that way? Is it just really, really believing? Is it saying the right words, doing the right things? Well, let's see as Jesus gives us this picture of approaching God. And, and the first, in this contrast, you, you find the one who approaches God through faith in, faith in self. And you have two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. You have, you have two reputations. One is moral and the other is immoral. And then we see the first uh, approach in verses 10 through, through, through 11. And before we get there, look at verse 9. He says, And thus he spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You don't have to guess what this parable is about. God, the Holy Spirit, through Luke, puts it right up in front. While I'm getting ready to tell you this parable, I'm speaking it to people that are trusting in themselves that they were righteous. That's why this parable is coming. That's why he gives this, this contrast. And this scene actually begins back in verse, in verse 1. There, there, there are two contrasts here. There's the contrast uh, of 18, 1 through 8, uh, of, a, of, a, of an unjust judge and a, a very just God, a contrast between God and a judge. And now there's going to be a contrast between this Pharisee and tax collector. And Jesus is speaking it to people who are trusting in themselves. Notice he's not speaking about them. He's speaking to them. He's speaking to you today. He doesn't want you to just stand back and listen as you're, you're hearing a sermon. He's speaking to you today. God is speaking to you today. If you're trusting in yourself, in your righteousness for salvation, he's speaking to you today. Hear his words. Heed what God has to say. He's not speaking about them. He's speaking to them. He speaks this parable. He spoke the parable to some who trusted in themselves. The construction says, those who were convinced or had persuaded themselves, I am righteous. That's what it means in the original. He's speaking it to those who were convinced or who had persuaded themselves that I am righteous. The world is full of such people. I used to be one. Are you one? Have you persuaded yourself? Have you argued with your own conscience? Have you argued with a preacher, argued with the Bible, argued with the reality the fact that you see that you continually fail and you continually come up short, have you persuaded yourself that you're okay or that, that God won't judge or that He's a pretty nice guy even though you are and your sincerity somehow is going to appease God's, God's wrath? Jesus is speaking to you. And then Jesus immediately sets up the contrast. Look at verse 10. Two men went up to the the temple to pray. Here's the two men. And then he tells us who they are. One a Pharisee and the other tax collector. There's the, there's the reputations. Now that's hard for us to grasp the magnitude in which that thud would have hit as people listen to the story. Because we think Pharisee bad, tax collector good. Because we're here in, in this century. But that's not how they would have heard it. In, in that day, it would have been Pharisee good, Pharisee righteous guy. Pharisee, 
clean, moral fellow that does everything right. There's no way that I could ever be as righteous as a Pharisee. And, and this publican, bad. One's a very religious and seemingly moral man. The other is a known traitor. He's an avowed enemy. In the minds of Jews, not just Pharisees, the publican was a puppet of Rome. He was somebody who committed the most despicable act possible. He's a traitor. And he's a traitor that gets rich off of his own people, and not just his own people, God's covenant people. And he does that through Roman power, through Gentile power. How would you feel about a Christian? How would you feel about a member of Timberlake Baptist Church that sold out to Planned Parenthood and then used the tithes of Timberlake Baptist Church to help prop up abortions at the clinic in Roanoke? You'd be pretty... You'd think pretty ugly about that person, wouldn't you? What would you think about a person who, say, Al-Qaeda or ISIS invaded the U.S. and, and took over, and then, and then somebody that you knew, a fellow American, somebody that was, that was even tighter than that, went to work for ISIS or Al-Qaeda and, and was exacting uh, taxes upon you, and those taxes were being used to prop up that regime over you. That, that may give you an idea of how they felt about, about the tax collector. And the Pharisee was the opposite. He was a member of a Jewish sect who means a, the pious ones, the separated ones, and they attempted to live up to their name. They weren't just separated from Gentiles and tax collectors. They're separated from everybody. And when forced in daily encounter, they, they went through ceremonial washings and, and they purified themselves just in case they happened to touch somebody like you or me. They kept the traditions. They were outwardly without blemish. You couldn't even become a, a Pharisee without being invited. It was a admission that was strictly controlled after a period of probation, usually lasting up to one year, during which the candidate had to prove his ability to follow ritual law, and one slip-up and you're done. He, this man, along with the publican, went to the temple to pray. Why do they go to the temple to pray? Well, what's going on there? There's a lot of things packed into, into little words. This is probably one of the prescribed hours of, of prayer. There's, there's three. Acts 3.1 tells us that 3 p.m. was the evening sacrifice. The third hour was 9 a.m., the sixth hour being, being noon, and they go up to this massive edifice of, of the temple. The temple area was used for all different types of things, religious transactions, teachings, and bringing sacrifices and private devotions, and there was also a place for prayer. Think about what Jesus is getting ready to allow you to do. He's allowing you and me to listen into the private prayer of a man who's convinced of his own righteousness. How often do you get to listen into the true, unguarded thoughts of another person? I can remember one of the most horrifying things I ever experienced as a manager. I was working for Anthem and... and uh, managing people, and, and, and the director of the program came and, and says, we got a big issue. Um, coworker one, who is the, the boss of, of this other woman, um, called her, her voicemail to let his wife listen 
to how uh, seductive and horrible her voicemail was, and they didn't get the phone hung up. And so for 30 to 40 minutes, him and his wife went back and forth and talked about this woman while it's being recorded. And she goes to check her voicemail and finds this unguarded conversation when no one is listening. And you say, I'm going to make sure that I check my phone's hung up. Have you ever butt-dialed somebody? Right? And you're sitting there and you realize you called them. And the first thing, and it's already hung up because it's been 30 minutes ago. And the first thing you think is, boy, I hope I wasn't yelling at my wife or my kids or kicking the dog, right? Well, here is a man that you get to listen into his unguarded thoughts. And you get to see his approach. Look at what he says here. Verse 11, the Pharisee approaches God. The Pharisee stood and prayed this. He stands close to the front of the temple where the Holies of Holies is found. A typical posture would have been, would have been hands up and, and eyes up. He's standing there looking up to God with his hands, signifying, I'm clean before you, I'm approaching you, and I have nothing to hide. This man speaks of God, but he speaks to himself. Look at what it says. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself. (laughs) And he thanks God that he's not like others, and he singles people out. out. He singles out robbers and the unjust, the extortioners and the adulterers. He's a man who outwardly is morally pure, and he's letting God know that. A businessman well known for his ruthlessness once announced to Mark Twain, Before I die, I mean to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, climb Mount Sinai, and read the Ten Commandments aloud at top. Twain said, I have a better idea. You could just stay in Boston and keep them. Love that quote. This man did, outwardly. He was morally and ceremonially clean. But he wasn't justified inwardly because of of all these things. And I think the first thing that Jesus shows us, and you're going to see this in the posture, is justification does not come on the basis of moral condition. Because there is no moral standing before God. This man is outwardly moral. Justification also doesn't come by contractual agreement. Look at verse 12. Look at what he says. After he points to others with his eyes and hands up, I fast twice a week, I I give tithes of all I possess. What's he trying to do? Not only does he recount for God what he is not, but he tells God what he is. And then he recounts the good deeds that he does. And he says, I fast twice a week. Well, well, the law would have required only an annual fast on the Day of Atonement, once a year. And he says, I do it twice a week, God. I don't just give 10%. I give 50%. And I don't just do it Sunday morning. I do it Sunday night and Wednesday night. He says, I give tithes of all I possess. The law required only a tithe on certain items. And this man gave tithes on all that he possessed. And he is not only saying, "What I do what is required. He's saying, I... I I do even more. 
You know, some people think salvation is simply making an agreement with God. God, I'll do my part and, and you do yours. Salvation is by grace. It's not by agreement. The Pharisee attempts to make God his debtor by going above the law. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all I possess. Now, remember, he's speaking to God here as if God doesn't know what he does. I mean, why would you run through those things before God? Oh, God, I just want to fill you in on a little bit about what I've been doing while you haven't been paying attention, right? He's saying, God, on this basis, you should act on my behalf. He's making a contract with God. He's pointing to what God should do because of what he has done. And that's exactly the opposite. We appeal to God on the basis of what God has done because of what we have not. God, I've done my part, now you do yours. And he's making God a debtor. This is not really even a prayer, is it? It's a speech. (laughs) It's a speech given to God. He's declaring to God his own status before him. In the prayer, he mentions God once And he mentions himself five times. He's congratulating himself throughout the prayer. He never confesses sin. He never asks for forgiveness. And he even, or even asks for anything for that matter. This is a prayer and he asks for nothing. He just makes statements. Not about Christ or God, but about himself and about other people. And I think you can also take from this justification does not come by human comparison. Let me tell you something. You can find plenty of people worse than you. But it's funny how we always look to them and not the person who's sitting beside us that's better than us, right? (laughs) But whether you find that person's better than you or worse than you, every human being is compared to God. And God is holy and perfect. And because of that, every human being is in the same boat without hope. Men who are convinced of their own righteousness do so, keep themselves propped up by comparing themselves to others. We're not justified before God out of comparison. We're justified because we look to a source outside of ourselves for merit, that being Christ. It's interesting he doesn't compare himself to the other Jews and the other Pharisees who are moral around him. He points to the immoral ones. This is his conclusion. He says, I'm not a robber of men's possessions. And externally he wasn't, but he was a robber of God's glory. He says, I'm glad I'm not a dishonest man, but internally he lies to himself and to God. He says, I'm glad I'm not a physical adulterer, but in fact he was even a worse kind, a spiritual adulterer departing from the Lord and the the living God. He compares himself to other people. And now watch this. In verse 13, I fast twice a week, give tithes of all I possess, and now his eyes turn from upward to the tax collector that's here. And he says, and and this tax collector, even this tax collector in verse 11, I'm sorry, not 13. He compares himself to other people and not God, and then his eyes fall on the publican who's come to the same place that he has to pray, and he says, or like him. And you can hear the contempt in his voice. And what's even more damning is what that man's doing, what's going on. I'm glad I'm not like him. And as you're going to see in a minute, this him is being saved. (laughs) 
while this man is being saved, the Pharisee says, and I'm, I'm glad I'm not like this, and I'm glad I'm not like this, and I'm glad I'm not like him who is coming to Christ, beating his breast, crying for mercy. And he says, I'm glad I'm not like this man. But being like this man is exactly what, what he needs. So here's the other contrast. Approaching God through faith alone. So Jesus, in verse 13, says, and the tax collector. Now he's going to turn to this other man, the tax collector, standing afar off. Tax collectors were contracted by Rome, often supplied by Roman legions. And as I said, you can understand why a Jew would think this man is a traitor. This, it would have been scandalous for this, for this public and this tax collector to even show up at the temple. The fact that he even came to pray is striking, is humbling. Do you like to go to places that you're not wanted? Do you feel awkward? If you're going to witness and you would go in the midst of people that were hating of Christ. I mean, this man walks into the middle of the temple. He knows he's not wanted there and, and he also is not doing it just out of show. He, he really believes he's going to find God there and he goes there anyway. For the publican to even come to the temple to pray would have caused ridicule. And that could be even seen how the Pharisee responds to him. And I'm glad I'm not like this man. What's he doing here? He shouldn't be here. You can hear it earlier in Luke 15 where Jesus says in the sinners and publicans, the tax collectors drew near to hear him and the Pharisees grumbled. The Pharisee would have thought he's deserving of God's merit and the tax collector is a traitor. And then here this man approaches and the tax collector in verse 13, standing afar off. All this is a contrast. The Pharisee comes as close as he can to the holies of holies that he can get. To this day, if you go to Israel, you'll find them getting up against the western wall because that is the closest that they believe they can get to where the holies of holies took place or, 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 or sat on top of the temple mount. So we get as close to God as possible, and the publican does the opposite. He won't even approach the front of the temple because that place represented God's presence. He didn't feel worthy to approach God, but but came anyway because he knew he needed something only God could give him. Look at what he says here. He's standing afar off. He would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. He won't take the the posture of prayer of I'm holy or clean before you. He's unwilling even to lift up his lift up his eyes. He's ashamed of his sin. He won't even look at God. You ever been in a discussion with someone and you're trying to discern? Whether they're guilty or not, maybe your your child, and they won't look at you, and that's a telltale sign. And you'll say, "Look at me." Tracy was telling me the other day, I do it with the dog all the time. I won't. I'll look at the dog, and the dog will look back at me, and I'll look at the dog till she looks away. And when she does something wrong, even the dog won't look at me. You just know, right? You don't want to look because eyes eyes are a window to the soul. It's penetrating. He won't even turn his eyes toward God because he knows that he stands naked and bare before God right now in his soul. Lifting one's eyes toward heaven, he won't, he won't do it. As far as he's concerned, he's, the, he's not going to compare himself. There's no comparison here. He's the greatest sinner here. Look at his, look at his acknowledgement. The text says he was beating his breast in anguish over his sins. 
He wouldn't so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast. Shows a continual action. It's, a, it's an act of, of self-accusation and despair. I'm the man. I did it. It's me. It's my sin. It's not somebody else's. It's me. That's what he's saying. He expressed his repentance and humility in what he said as he cries out, God be propitiated to me. And watch this. He says, a sinner, it's the sinner. You know what he's doing? He's agreeing with the Pharisee. I mean, both of these guys are in the same room. One's in the front and one's in the back. And the Pharisee is going, and I'm glad I'm not like this one and this one and this one. And I'm glad I'm not like this man. He's a sinner. I'm not. And you know, the, 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 the public is, is saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I am the sinner. I agree with what he says. I don't have the right to be here. I don't have the right to turn my eyes to you. I don't have the right to stand before you because I am the sinner. He's right, is what he's saying. Oh, God, make yourself favorably inclined to me. If you don't make yourself favorably inclined to me, I have no basis on which to stand. God, mercy, please, is what he's saying. And look at what he says. Be merciful. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He doesn't say, Father, absolve me because I have sinned. Speaking to a priest or the Pharisee, he addresses God. There's the object of his faith, God. Grant mercy. There's the request. Be merciful to me. Propitiate yourself to me. And there's the acknowledgement, the sinner. And however you come to God and however you say it, you'll do the same thing. There'll be an object of your faith, which is Christ. There'll be a request for mercy because of God's grace. It wouldn't be available apart from grace. And there'll be an acknowledgement, I'm the sinner. The statement he makes is the exact opposite of the Pharisees. It's impossible to misconstrue. Misconstrue. He's saying, God, it's all you. If you don't render me favorable, I have no hope. He's saying the same thing that Romans 4 says. Now, not to the one who works. His wage is not credited as a favor, but that which is due. That's the Pharisee. He's saying, God, this is what's due me for what I've worked. But here's the contrast. But to him who does not work... <laughs> but believes in Him who justifies, don't miss this, the ungodly. God justifies, God declares righteous the ungodly. God doesn't declare, declare righteous the godly. God doesn't declare righteous the righteous. God declares righteous the ungodly. How does He do that? As faith, which is credited to Him, accounted to Him, as righteousness, Who's his faith in? In the one who was righteous. Who is the man, Christ Jesus. He's saying, you must look outside of me. And Jesus says, this man went away justified. Here's the the response of God in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house. You go up to the temple to pray. You go down to your house. This man went down to his house, declared righteous rather than the other. What? And then he gives the final statement. 
While the Pharisee was rejected by God, the tax collector was declared righteous before God. Now, don't miss that. He was declared righteous even though he wasn't. He was treated righteous even though he wasn't. Because Christ was his righteousness and his substitute in a judicial sense. Salvation is granted by God's grace alone. Salvation is received through faith alone. And salvation is found in Christ alone. This man, when Jesus says he went down from his house justified, he's, he's encompassing Psalm 51.1. His sins have been blotted out. His transgressions have been removed. They've been capped, cast in the depths of the seas, Micah 7.19. Upon him the approval of God now rests. How blessed is the doctrine of justification. Behold him there, the righteous lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. This man was right with God because he looked not to himself, but he looked to God. And the punchline of the parable, already interpreted, is found at the end. Why did this man go down justified? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That's the Pharisee. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility brings sinners in the presence of God's holiness without being consumed. But faith in Christ renders those sinners that are not consumed because of their humility right with God and justified because of their request for mercy. A holy God does not reject the humble heart. Remember that whenever you approach the Lord.